would, out of love and reverence for God's word, stand with me as we read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, this is your word. You give it to us for our teaching, rebuke, correction, and instruction. Your word will not return to you void, so we do ask that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We do pray that you would increase our joy, that you would help us to live as people who recognize and experience the joy that you have come to give us in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Joy, my friends, is indeed um, an, an essential aspect of the life of a believer. And I, th- I think joy is best evidenced in the midst of conflict or negative circumstances. And joy is something that uh, the world looks for by way of happiness, but the, the, the world doesn't really understand. It is a distinctly Christian uh, gift. Um, William Ernest Henley was a 19th century poet and writer. Um, for all we know, never came to know the Lord, uh, but uh, in just the opposite, he seemed to have a very hardened uh, attitude towards the Almighty God. And his life was marked by suffering. He, at a young age, he had tuberculosis and needed to have one of his legs amputated. Uh, As he got older, he um, was constantly fraught with different illnesses and diseases. Uh, His other leg, the doctors wanted to amputate his other leg. He he fought against that, was able to keep it, but he was always in and out of hospitals, always struggling with illness. And he is uh, known for a, a poem that shows what the world, how the world would respond to conflict. And it's called Invictus. And it says this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance, My head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I 
am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And friends, I think if there's anything that the year 2020 has taught us is that we are not the masters of our fate. Uh, that we are uh, often afraid in the midst of the circumstances that are largely out of our control. And we recognize that with each passing day, whether it is a virus that seems to be uncontained, that causes us to be quarantined or things to be shut down, which results in economic hardship or loss of jobs, or we're talking about natural disasters such as hurricanes or tropical storms or uh, the, the political climate resulting in rioting and, um, you know, just a hyper-politicized, hyper-partisan political climate with contested elections, or even just the, the weirdness of sporting events with no fans or uh, the, the impact to our, our schools and our society, which seem, it seems like will have, leave this lasting uh, implications that will reverberate over many years. And our response has been varied. I don't know about yours, but joy and rejoicing hasn't been, I think, uh, the, the normal response for us as believers. And yet God's word would instruct us, would correct us, would even rebuke us to say we are to rejoice always. That we ought to recognize the the glorious gift that we have been given as God draws near to us. He has drawn near to us in his son Jesus Christ. He has given his very self to us. And I think as we look at this passage, what we'll see is that God draws near to say, rejoice always, because I give you peace, and I will be with you always. Now, uh, if you were to do a one-word summary of the book of Philippians, that word would be joy. And what's remarkable about that fact is that if you read through the pages of Philippians, you'll see that the... Uh, Paul was writing in the midst of um, amazing conflict um, f- to this church. So Philippi is part of a, uh, Macedonia, and we, we know certain things about what was going on there. First and foremost was Paul had planted that church, and he was their beloved spiritual leader, and yet, as he writes, he is in prison. And they recognize that the, the man that has loved them, has shepherded them, is now in prison for his faith. And so they are wrestling with that aspect. We also know that it was a, a church that faced significant financial hardship. Um, uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that they faced extreme poverty. Uh, and yet out of the poverty that they had, they still had a heart that chose to give. Um, we also see that... The, throughout Philippians that they are dealing with those who would attack the church from without, uh, those who would persecute the church, and he calls them to live with joy in the midst of that. And they also have conflict from within. 
Um, there are those who are, he says, dogs. Those who, he says, watch out for the dogs. Those who are evildoers within the church. And there's even an instance of two particular women who are at odds with one another that he exhorts them to agree with one another. And yet in the midst of that, his call over and over and over again is rejoice. Rejoice. And it finds its pinnacle in this particular passage in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice always, he says. And so um, and when, when we look through this, this passage, verses 4 to 9, I think he, the way he directs us to our rejoicing comes in three, uh, three key ways. He calls us to pray, calls us to ponder, and he calls us to practice. Pray, ponder, and practice. But first, a bit of a preface to those commands. He says, starting in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. So he's calling us as believers to rejoice always in every circumstance. It's, it's, there's no uh, dispute that he, he intends us to have a heart of rejoicing in all circumstances. And it's so important to him that he repeats himself, says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And even this verse is a repetition of something that he said before. If you flip back to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To say the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So we're called to rejoice. It's something that is so important. We need to be told over and over again and we could never grow tired of hearing about it. Um, and if you would have a good Lord's Day uh, exercise, a good bit of homework for the family, I would encourage you to go back through the book of Philippians. And kids, all the times you see the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing, all the things that, God, that Paul says to this church in Philippi, it's everywhere. But it's focused here in this passage in chapter 4. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's kind of an odd transition that he would talk about reasonableness. Um, the word there is properly translated reasonableness, but could also be gentleness. Uh, as if he were to say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Uh, right, reasonableness is right, but the, the fact that it's, he also, could also be gentle gets to the disposition, the heart of what I think Paul is thinking about is that in the midst of conflict, struggles, anxiety, we become unreasonable. Uh, a false perspective on our existence, on who God is, and what he's done for us causes anger, anxiety, apathy, uh, negative responses that show that we are out of touch with what God has said to us. But what he's calling us to is to be reasonable to, uh, and have a, a, a right reason that is transformed by the truth of what God has said. And it's one that is visible. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It is, we're speaking it. We're living it out. It's part of our disposition. And it's one that is full of rejoicing. So he says that as a bit of a preface. And then he says... Oh, the Lord is at hand. Um, and what he, Paul is getting at is God is close to the brokenhearted. God is 
our refuge and strength. God is ever with us. And so the way we live in the midst of conflict is it, it demonstrates that we recognize that fact that God is truly with us. And we'll see that as we dig further into our passage. So he begins by talking about our, the way that we would be reasonable, the way that we would cultivate this rejoicing heart. And he begins by prayer. He says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So a huge enemy of joy is anxiety. And anxiety is a fear of the future, a fear of the unknown, a recognition that things are bigger than what I can control, what you can control, and we don't know how they're going to turn out. And our fears as false prophets tell us death and destruction loom. And we want to gain control of those things that are outside of our control, and yet we can't. And so we are anxious. Um, and it's interesting that he turns to prayer. Um, what, I've shared this with a number of you. Uh, one of my favorite quotes on prayer was by a pastor uh, named Jack Miller. And uh, he recognized that his prayer life was not the way it ought to be. And he said, I realized that my heart orientation was, why would I need to pray when I can worry? I've got worry that I can control, and, uh, but prayer seems like letting control. But that is the, that is the re response, that is the solution, the, the defense against this attack against our joy is prayer. It is trust. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. It is a, it's countered by a trust. It is a relational response, knowing that God is there. The, the Psalms tell us that God is a refuge, our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. And yet we don't live like that's really the case. Uh, Lord Jesus said, do not be anxious about anything. He said, do not be anxious about your um, what you'll wear, what you'll eat, what you, you know, your very life. Your Father knows the, that you need these things. And yet, the way we, we worry, the way our anxiety reigns within our hearts, the way our fears overtake us, we are functional atheists, as though those things are not really true. And so what God does is he beckons us back to himself in relation to him, and he says, trust me. He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Not just, I'm going to voice my concerns, but I'm going to make my request known to God. I'm going to act with trust and belief that there is a God that is, the Lord Jesus said, your heavenly Father, your Father who knows that you need these, needs these things and cares about you so intimately that not a hair from your head could fall to the ground apart from his knowledge and will. And your father says, ask me. 
Ask me. Trust me. Rest in me. Um, and he, he would have us rely on him in the midst of our anxiety, that we would trust him and rest on the firm footing that this God who is sovereign over all is caring for us, has our best interests at heart, and has a purpose to carry them out. And notice he says, um, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So prayer and supplication, very similar terms. But the uh, idea, I mean, the, the youth would know the, the word supplication as we go through the Acts prayer form with, where we adore God for who he is. We confess our sins. We give thanks, T, and then S, supplication, where we're, asking, we're praying our prayer requests to God. So these, these are prayers where we're asking God to um, respond to these needs that we feel, these fears that we have. But it's done with thanksgiving, he says, with thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving is important because it's recognizing what we have received. It's re- recognizing that God, um, we're thankful that God wants to hear and that we're thankful that God will respond. Um, and this can be uh, a challenge, but it's, it's an essential part of our prayer life to be praying with thanksgiving. And to give you an example, um, you may have seen the email. One of our members uh, had a, a friend who's young, uh, uh, their son, this young man, had gotten COVID and was in the ICU. Uh, this was recently. And this is scary stuff. You know, ICU, COVID, young man at the, the beginning of his adulthood. How do, how do we respond to that? And perhaps it's a, it's a prayer like it begins, Father, I thank you that you have known this young man from before he was born. you, Father, thank you that you know every intimate part of this man's body. You have knit him together in his father's womb. Father, that you're great. thank you that you're, you're greater than this virus. Father, thank you that you were with this, these doctors, these teams of doctors and nurses. You equipped them to care medically for this young man. Father, thank you that there are worse things than a virus and a sickness, that um, you speak to our heart and you give us hope that is beyond the grave. Father, we do implore you to care for this young man, to bring him to health, to give his parents comfort and resting in your unchanging grace in the midst of the, the fear of not knowing what's going to happen with their son. Father, thank you for surrounding them with brothers and sisters who know you and your goodness and your love would you use them to encourage him and his family? That's a prayer with thankfulness in and about, in and about, even while we cling to the hope that God hears, he cares, and he will respond. We ought to pray um, with thanksgiving. And notice what the response is that, that, that God promises. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or is far exceeds, far above, far above all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There are times, the, the problem with our fears and our anxieties is that they seem so logical. 
They seem so right because we are, they're out of our control. There's nothing we can do about it. And we figured out how we are right to be afraid. And yet, by trusting in God, resting in his kindness and his goodness, God gives us a peace that far exceeds even our, in our understanding. And that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard uh, it literally means like set up a garrison as though our fears and anxieties would attack our hearts and our minds. And yet God, by his peace, protects us. And it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, united to Christ because of the goodness that, and, and grace that we have in Christ, but also the, the adoption that we have in Christ Jesus, being God's child, where he cares for us, where he says, no, nothing will snatch you out of my hand. Nothing. I, I will care for you for all eternity. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we're called to pray, but then the next thing is we're called to ponder. He says, um, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so he shifts our gaze. We tend to focus on the hurt, what's fearful, what's wrong. There is so much that is wrong in our existence. And yet God would have us shift our gaze to what is wrong, to what is praiseworthy. And he gives us these eight different virtues. And what's interesting about this list of virtues is that there's not a person alive, I don't think, that wouldn't find every one of those virtues good and praiseworthy. They're um, pleasant to believer and unbeliever alike. And yet, for Paul and for us, we ought to understand that each of these virtues is focused squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ and show evidence of his work in the midst of our experience in the midst of um, our, our day-to-day life. He begins with whatever is true. There's, there's much in our life that is false. In fact, uh, as we saw in the book of Ephesians, we are, we are corrupted by falsehood. All of our existence is corrupted by the lie. But remember what Paul said. He says the truth is in Jesus. And so if there's any truth... That truth is in Jesus. It is centered on him and on God's grace to us in him, God's purpose to redeem all things in him. And when there is something that is true, it is evidence that that work has begun, that God is at work in our existence. Then whatever is honorable, um, you might remember from Ephesians that we were, uh, Paul said that Gentiles were given up to their dishonorable passions. And we see this everywhere. Uh, uh, another word for, dis- for honorable here would be um, distinguished. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that um, uh, is a necessary qualification for elders, and it is um, a qualification for, that is encouraged for older men and women that they live dignified lives, that they're dignified. Um, And there's much that is undignified in our experience. And we tend to focus on it and say, it's filth. 
It's wrong, and we're, and we're right about that. And yet God would say, but is there anything honorable? Is there anything that is dignified? And if there is, think of such things. And he says, whatever is just. There is incredible injustice in our lives. And we could easily make a list of all the things that we see in the news, in our conversations, that is unjust, either in our personal lives or in the the world at large. And yet, is there any justice? And if there's any justice in the midst of the injustice of the fall, then God is at work. And we know that there is. Even some from our own number, our own members, are members of law enforcement, the Justice Department, bringing justice to criminals, bringing justice in this world. If there's any justice, anything just, we ought to think of those things. Then is there anything pure? There is, again, much that is impure or unholy. Another word for that would be holy. Is there where our our lives are filled with unholiness, our eyes see far too much than we ever should. Our hearts are far too impure, and we ought to pursue that holiness. But is there purity? Do we see it? Do we see the purity, the holiness that God has promised to work in your life, in your brother or sister's life, your husband or your wife, your kids? Is there any purity, any holiness? If so, we ought to think of those things. If, is there anything lovely? Certainly there is much that is disgusting and foul and filthy in this world. You turn on any report about the rioting or the peaceful protests or whatever you want to call it. It's not lovely. And yet there is much that is lovely. There is good, lovely behavior. Even as God in his grace has has sent his son, the, the lovely one, the lovely king of kings to redeem his bride and to make her beautiful. There is, there is beauty in the church, even as God's people gather together to worship him, as they grow together in grace, as they uh, grow in their likeness of their Savior. So if there's anything lovely, we ought to think of those things. And then the last three are very similar. If there's anything commendable, worth praising, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise at all, he says, think about these things, anything good. So often we want to focus on what is negative. He says, focus on what is good. And so with all this list, what we we have to see, brothers and sisters, is that what God wants us to do is to focus and see that he is at work. Prayer is um, an acknowledgement that God can work and a trust that God will work. But what he exhorts us to here is to identify and to see how God has worked and is working. And so what I would encourage you is to give glory to God through by acknowledging what he has done. Give glory to God by seeing where he has worked. Where has he brought justice? Where has he brought beauty? Where has he brought purity? And think about those things and give him glory. 
Prayer, we would give glory to God because we are acknowledging he is able. In these ways, we acknowledge that he has done it. He has worked. And so um, for those of us who struggle with joy, which I think is all of us, I would encourage you to do this. Spend some time thinking through how has God demonstrated his powerful working and powerful grace in your life? What are the things that you can see? Train yourself to see things that meet these criteria and give him glory for it. Rejoice, give thanks, praise him. He delights in receiving that glory because he has done it. So we're to pray, we're to ponder, but the last one is to practice. And this seems a bit different, but Paul says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul gives another list, this time not a list of virtues, but a list of ways that the Philippian church has uh, appropriated or received his example. He says that they, whatever you have learned, so he has taught them things, and whatever you have received, he's given them things. Whatever you've heard, he's said things, he's modeled things. Whatever you've seen, he's lived before them. He's set an example for them. And he says, whatever you've learned, practice these things. Practice these things. And it's a, it's a real reality that for leaders in the church, we are called to set an example for the flock. Elders specifically are called to set an example for the flock. And that is in life and in faith and in joy and love. Um, our, our recognition of who God is as he comes to us in Scripture and Paul says that very same thing. He says, but he says, practice these things. So these are things that can be practiced. And if you were to go back through the book of Philippians, you would see that he's put, already put into practice these two th- things that he's already said, prayer and pondering. If you were to flip back to uh, chapter 1, Paul begins his, his uh, book, as he does many of his books, with prayer, a prayer of joy. He says in verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He is modeling, even from the very beginning, this prayer, this supplication with thankfulness so that he might be filled with joy and might model that joy. But he also demonstrates that he's pondered um, the things that are, are good. He gives, even in, in chapter 1, there's two other instances where there are conflicts and he responds the right way. Um, he, he's in prison, and in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's saying, I could focus on my imprisonment. I could focus on the fact that I am in chains. But he says, I am going to think about what is good and praiseworthy and lovely. It's been known to the entire guard. I would not have had this opportunity had I not been in chains. God is at work, even through this circumstance. And then a little bit later in verse 15, he says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There are those who are trying to attack me and they're, 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 they're trying to outwit me, and they're preaching Christ. 
And he says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, even though he is attacked, even though he is trying to, somebody's trying to sideline Paul, minimize his ministry. He says, all that matters is that Christ is proclaimed. I am going to focus on that which is good. God is at work, and for that I will rejoice. And so, um, it's it's a it's important for us to see his example, but also to live that example. And and notice what he says here is the result. Once we ponder and we practice, he says, "And the God of peace will be with you." And remember, he had said in verse seven, he said, "The peace of God will guard your hearts." Now he says, "The God of peace will be with you." It's a bit different. In the, in the first, he was saying God would protect us with our, his peace. Now he's saying the God of peace will be with you. He will be with you in your prayers because he will hear your prayers. He will be ready to respond to your prayers. He will give you peace in your prayers. He will be with you as you ponder because the Spirit is the one who gives us eyes to see what God has done and gives us joy as we see those things, and he's with us when we practice because it is only by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, enabling us to work out that which we've seen, that we can do these things with joy. And so God promises to draw near to us in the midst of these circumstances, and so we must rejoice. Just a few thoughts before we conclude. Um, it's important for us to realize, even though Paul's saying we need to focus on these things, it's not a call to ignore all evil and to live as though everything is good. You know, kids, regardless of what the Lego movie said, everything is not awesome, at least not on this side of glory. Yeah, we have glory ahead, and yet God would have us focus on that which is evidence of his goodness and grace in our life. Scripture is very clear to call sin, sin, and to call evil, evil, and it is good for us to do so, and yet, even in the midst of the evil, even in the midst of the wickedness, to see God at work and to rejoice in the midst of those things. Um, and if you remember from Ephesians, we're, we've been called to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. Paul also says that in Romans. And this is really a close-up, I think, a zoomed-in close-up of how we are to be renewed in our minds as we focus on Christ and what God has promised and we, and we take him at his word and we live in accordance with it. It involves moving forward in a growing dependence on the Lord and as we grow in dependence, that drives us to prayer, to trust that God will actually provide. And once we pray, we pray for things with faith, trusting that God will actually do it, that gives us expectant eyes. We, we long to see, will God actually respond? And once we have those expectant eyes, then we begin to see what God is doing, what God has done, how God responds and that fuels greater trust and confidence and resting as we walk forward in joy. And 
All these things are working together to instill in us a spirit of trust, which results in joy, which ought to result in rejoicing. It ought to be on our faces and in our words, every part of our being, despite our circumstances. For God himself is with us. Um, around the same time as uh, William Ernest Henley, there was a, uh, a, an American lawyer named Horatio Spafford, who was also a Presbyterian elder, and he also faced um, significant conflict and suffering at that particular time. First of all, he lost nearly everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. And two years later than that, after that, um, he and his family were going to take a vacation to Europe. But because he was a lawyer and he had things he had to take care of as a result of the fire, he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him to Europe. And as they were approaching Europe, their ship was struck by another ship, and um, the four girls died, and the wife made it to Europe, and she telegrammed home to say simply, saved alone. Saved alone. And as the man Spafford uh, made his way across the Atlantic to go be with his wife, uh, and he reached the point where his daughters met their watery grave he penned these words, which can only come from a heart that understands that God is near us. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, we have been given every reason to rejoice because our great God has come near to us in his son, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us for his very own. We are his child. He promised to protect us, to guide us, to care for us, to be with us until the very end. And so rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Father, would you work joy in us? You have given us so much. You love us so profoundly, so deeply. And forgive us for being distracted by our circumstances. Would you fix our eyes on your beauty, on your majesty, on your beloved Son, Jesus Christ? He is our hope. You have promised him to us. You have promised us salvation in his name. And so may we live with the joy that must come as a result. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.